0: welcome to the cannabis cultivation and science podcast i'm your host tad hussey of kiss organics this is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and drawn top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is my dear friend, Jeremy Plum. Jeremy was the director of production science at Proof Cultivar, one of the most technologically advanced cannabis cultivation facilities in North America. At Proof, Jeremy combined decades of cannabis horticultural experience with cutting-edge technology to deliver previously unattainable consistency in both product quality and consumer effect. Prior to his leadership at Proof, Jeremy was the co-founder of Pharma, recently acclaimed by Rolling Stone as one of Oregon's top dispensaries. Jeremy has served as a cannabis consultant to Israel medical cannabis researchers and and as a cannabis policy advisor for U.S. members of Congress. He also serves on the OLCC's Rulemaking Advisory Committee. In 2015, Jeremy co-founded Cultivation Classic, Oregon's leading craft cannabis competition, He lives in Portland, Oregon with his border collie, Lucy, and when he can, finds fewer greater joys than sailing on the mighty Columbia River. Now on to the show. Okay. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for coming on the show again today.
1: Hey, Chad, great to be on the show again. Thank you so much for hosting.
0: You are coming to us all the way from Ireland. You took time out of your busy schedule um, and, you know, a work vacation a little bit too to... uh, talk to us today about uh, aroma, I think was the topic you wanted to tackle. Um, take it away.
1: Fantastic. Well, given that I'm speaking to you from Dublin, I feel it's appropriate to start the conversation with a quote from one of my favorite writers and poets, uh, William Butler Yates, uh, who is also from Ireland. Uh, he wrote these lines uh, a long time ago, but I think this is really relevant to our conversation. And, He says, the world is full of magic things, patiently awaiting for our senses to grow sharper. That little quote is almost, I think, a bit of a mission statement for the direction that I'm excited to talk about, which connects to some of the recent science I've been doing, both from the cultivation and the consumer education side. Um, So specifically trying to create a bridge between sensory science done in a mature way, to the cannabis cultivation efforts and to the rich analytical chemistry that we have access to, because I, I think I'll be able to share means by which it's even more relevant uh, in a lot of ways than, say, a focus narrowly on terpenes. And I'll get to that material, but, Chad, but I want to start with, I actually have an exciting announcement, which has been forthcoming for some time, and there's been some delays, but there is a scientific white paper that is a journal journal article that is going to be coming out in the journal Molecules, that I have uh, the privilege of collaborating with Dr. A.D. Ray and Jeremy Sackett, previous founder of Cascadia Analytical, and 80's uh, grad students who've been helping to digest a lot of the data from the Cultivation Classic event that I co-founded like eight years ago, something like that. Um, so the exciting thing is that I, you know, when we set out to start Cultivation Classic, when I actually was in Washington, D.C. on a cannabis lobbying trip with Congressman Blumenauer, trying to think about how we could support Oregon to have its own voice, which is a lot about ecology and ethics, as well as about uh, community and education, and trying to empower all the producers uh, to understand the cutting edge of both production dynamics and product character. You know, I really wanted to open source like all the sort of trade secrets that were going on as a longtime cultivator myself and empower the community to do better. And I think in many ways we've we've achieved some of that aim, but this is really a specific way that has always been something we've been excited about, but just haven't had the resource to follow through on. So we've created a ton of data because I think, as you know, Cultivation Classic is really distinct from any other cannabis evaluation competition. Um, I'm really in love with our colleagues who put on a variety of different kinds of cannabis events and bring the community together. And I you know, will never forget my very first High Times Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam, long time ago, late 90s. Um, but the reality is I also quickly became aware of the fact that in all of the competitions, you would see these scenes where there's a handful of really amazing judges usually who are deeply involved and, and they're kind of dumped on with a huge amount of samples and they have a very short period of time and there's almost no controls about how they're exploring those samples. And then various competitors are given these awards which end up having massive impact in their business and their brand development. And in many cases, I think that we see that inherently those awards aren't tied to the sort of quality evaluation you would hope to see if you were looking from the outside in. You know, you'd really like to see that all of the samples were very thoroughly and rigorously reviewed in a process that could create um, truly differentiated uh, sort of samples. So that what I mean is, you know, sometimes the best products don't win, full stop. Uh, that's not always the case, of course, but in any case, Cultivation Classic was a bit of a response to that. And I am really proud of the fact that we've had double blind, sort of very scientifically rigorous evaluation at the event that uh, includes agronomic or agricultural grading, it includes sensory grading. It also included uh, the very first versions of an ecological energy efficiency tool called the Power Score. Uh, that Derek Smith's organization, the Resource Innovation Institute, brought forward to our event uh, first. And actually the Oregon producers, who would fill out really long forms, like 14 pages uh, talking about energy and water, empowered the RII to be more effective nationwide in having baseline data for indoor, outdoor, and greenhouse production models. But we also had some other weird stuff, like uh, the most important, I would say, uh, thrust and the organization has been led by 80, uh in that she, as a neuroscientist and a DEA uh, and NIDA-licensed uh, cannabis researcher, was able to work on the qualitative patient perspective. We can't speak in patient terms, though, because that would run afoul of the FDA. So we talk about consumers. And instead of being able to talk about therapeutic effects, we really talk about consumer enjoyment. Um, That's, you know, working within the limitations of our fractured non-federal regulatory situation. Uh, The only way that we could do this truly clinical level research, you know, with trained judges who work for up to six months in some cases and have a massive amount of time and purview of, of the samples and detailed process and input tools. To summarize their findings so one of the exciting things is also simply being able to avoid all the interlab variability to choose a single analytical testing partner to be able to qualify all of those products with a similar baseline Um, but what's exciting is the findings that we're putting forward in the journal molecules is really the very first bit of the data that's been harnessed at cultivation classic which you know, has been an entirely volunteer-run program. And uh, I initially founded that with Steph Barnhart, previously of the WAMIT Week, now co-founder of Smart Cannabis, which became the back-end data effort. But I think for anybody who saw behind the scenes and was just used to cannabis competitions being pretty rigged, I'd hope that they were kind of blown away by the level of rigor and blinding to the evaluations that went on. I I guarantee there's not a close second uh, currently, although I hope there are more. We've done a lot of work to map, I think, the organ chemoscape by having lots of craft producers funneling through that same process. But I think this first work that's coming out is some of the most exciting and disruptive because we find ourselves in a time where I think a lot about the consumers we serve as cultivators. And the experience that they have when they go into a retail dispensary to acquire the product, the reality is if you come from the old school and you had the privilege of being very close to a cultivator who was really skilled, you would frequently be able to observe quality and character in the product samples that were like vastly better than what you typically see in wholesale uh, cannabis and retail cannabis in the sort of adult use program. This is often simply because of freshness uh, is my perspective. And I'll say more about that, but the importance of aroma cannot be overstated. I want to jump to the punchline and share a couple of the findings that have actually come up before, but I think now are a little sharper. That came out of this research, which to the best of my knowledge is the biggest scale clinical trial level quality study using contemporary products, not like 2% moldy NIDA weed, um, but really exceptional craft cannabis produced by organic cultivators in Oregon to then uh, look at what attributes are most enjoyable. What do the people, which you know, are a very diverse band of judges in this rigorous setting, uh, what are they enjoying the most about the product? It's a simple question in a way. But when we think back to the retail experience, so consumer walks into retail, they see you know things that are high THC, they're talking in terms of Indica-Sativa hybrid, they're now using terpene dominance and correlating that to personal and targeted effects. Worse, there's marketing efforts that, use proprietary modalities to categorize things into targeted effects. If you peel the veneer, you find there's absolutely zero evidence to support that kind of marketing language. But the marketers understand that there's a great importance for the consumers to parse this incredibly diverse landscape of products into effects. So people do want sleep aid, They want to be stimulated and focused. They want to be relaxed and calmed. They want to be aroused. They want to be creative, et cetera. The problem is that this fundamentally is deceit. Let's just call it what it is. It's it's an earnest effort to meet consumer demand, but it's early stage. They have no tools or scientific evidence to support that this flower will cause that outcome and the other will cause a different outcome. Quickly, I want to insert a little micro thesis here, which is my notion of the effect matrix. You know, how do you determine what kind of an effect a product is going to have? Well, you have an endocannabinoid system. It has a tone. It's engendered that tone by virtue of genetics, your genetics, as well as your diet. There are other things that factor in, but those are giant forces. And... I've actually talked with cannabis clinicians who feel so passionately about the diet component. They don't want to work with phytocannabinoids until the diet component is better understood, until people work on eating in a more healthful way um, because the benefits will be so greatly reduced. But in any case, um, the endocannabinoid system tone means that your experience, Tad, is going to be different than mine and every other person in some important way and that that exact same product will act differently. That's only one variable in the effect matrix. Next up, we've got to deal with the phytochemical inventory. So what chemicals are in this flower? But you're left with this sort of uncomfortable reality where we're only measuring a tiny fraction and typically the things that are the largest molecular weight in a product Um, But you do not inherently have the most bioactive or the best awareness of the full range of secondary metabolism and what those compounds can do for people, yet we're just so far from that. And a few examples are that, you know, gas and fuel smells we now widely understand are driven by compounds. They're detectable to human olfaction at parts per trillion. So, for example, uh, thiols and thiolates. if you have in a natural gas line, uh, then now you can smell the otherwise inert explosive gas because it's so tiny of amount of thiols needed to create that sensory awareness that there's danger, there's natural gas leaking or being used. Um, thiols are rich in a very important category of aromatic chemistry in cannabis, and Ultimately, at a parts per trillion level basis, you can imagine where 25% of a consumer perceived aroma could result in one billionth of the total chemical inventory of that sample. So this is a very important data point that's certainly not reflected in a terpene report, but there are many other examples, like how esters, with all these tropical and sweet, sugary and fruity notes, or the aldehydes, things like green apple and banana are sort of prominent, or a paper in 2012 that summarized more than 50% of cannabis aroma being aldehydes. Um, you know, There's all this other categorization. So the bottom line is we're measuring a tiny bit of the phytochemical inventory, and we're making too big of a leap about the representation and significance of that. And when I just look around at other consumer products, I don't see – Nearly anybody except for, say, winemakers being concerned with that in consumer representation of wine, in brewers in representing that other than to the ultra beer geeks, Cicerones, uh, in their representation of beer. Instead, you find pretty commonly sensory language, but I'll save that for a later Risk. The third part of the effects matrix is that you have dosage. And dosage is getting increasingly better measured, but really dosage is the biggest variable in determining the intensity of the effect, full stop, a little tiny bit more. And you may be outside of the therapeutic window and now result in increased awareness of pain or anxiety as opposed to a decreased, you know, desirable therapeutic outcome. So dosage and titration are huge, but then you have to throw in because we're talking about altered states of consciousness when we're evaluating cannabis product qualities you have to deal with mindset and setting, similar to how the new psilocybin and assisted therapy modalities are working. And you know, they work in curating beautiful music playlists and having amazing environments and blindfolds and headphones and therapists and they're really working on that component in a way that cannabis folks I just genuinely don't see hardly at all, other than in you know, a few circles in my life. So that's if you want to get to a targeted effect, that's an honest way to educate people. To, you know observe their own experience and take notes and start to understand uh, how to achieve that but the marketing that stands in the way of a normal consumer walking into a shop and trying to attain something that they either just find enjoyable or even potentially therapeutically useful is a giant obstacle currently in the industry and this is really important to cultivators because so. we're the ones who have to create these products. We we're trying to, you know, essentially work within what is the most genetically diverse horticultural crop on the planet with tons and tons of different production techniques and variables. And I think in general, those of us who are working hard at it are trying to delight people. We want to make things that are truly enjoyable and useful. But if there's no measurement or mark to ascertain what that enjoyment is correlated to, I think you're left with a lot of people who are working on a sample size of one, taking their own anecdote and expressing from that position. And that's great if you have, say, the tremendous privilege of being in this industry or since long before it was an industry, and it's just been a movement of finding the entire range of possible sensory experiences in cannabis, possible... Uh, there's another great long word. Uh, phenomenologically qualified samples. So phenomenology is this idea of you study your own experience. It's That's kind of the, the gist. But that's that's what I've done. You know, my career in cannabis, I, I have always tried to understand myself as a baseline and not project that that is relevant or valid to others in many regards, but for my own ability to understand what is the most desirable cannabis character? How does that language connect to the idea of product quality and which plants are the most exceptional plants? And what, are, what is the range in the chemoscape or in the expressiveness of the plants? And what are the more and less intense expressions of each of the core categories in that range? That's a kind of filtering that as cultivators, I think you inherently are left with. So then jumping back to the white paper and then I'll take a breath. um, There is a really clear emphasis in this standout signal of what directly correlates with consumer enjoyment. Uh, that is very distinct from how you see cannabis being marketed currently. And it is 100% related to aroma, aroma, is different than flavor when we're talking about sensory science, you know, flavor, say we're talking about, again, a beer or ale. And I understand the complexity of correlating cannabis to alcohol, but I just want to use that language because it's very practical from a sensory perspective, but flavor has to do with mouthfeel or salt, sweet, umami, fat, bitter, etc. I mean, those things are actually flavor. When we really are talking about the character of a cannabis flower product, especially, we're talking about the aroma, most importantly, by far. And in fact, THC potency uh, did not positively correlate with consumer enjoyment. Seven out of 10 judges preferred samples when blinded and randomized that were under 20% THC. Um, There's a really important uh, idea that's at the base of that, which is that, you know, there's a biosynthesis in the plant that's creating and manufacturing all of these different classes of compounds. So when the glucose, the sugars and the photosynthates are converting at the base of the glandular head at the tip of the stalk of the trichome, Uh, you'll see this incredible enzymatic process where the olivatolic acid and the geranopyrophosphate are taking that glucose and turning that into CBGA. Um, This is the path by which the biosynthesis of cannabinoids are created. Here's an interesting piece, and this is a bit of a complex one. I don't have all the answers about or anything, but I am fascinated that GPP, geranopyrophosphate, is used for both the pathway to make cannabinoids as well as to make terpenoids and other aroma components. So imagine we're selecting plants for a wholesale market that is pursuing, you know, THC potency and strain names correlating to value. So if you want to make the most money or make any money at all, you better have something you know well north of 25% THC potency. And then think back to the biosynthesis well we're making decisions that are essentially resulting in products that incentivize the cannabinoid potency in a hierarchy over the aroma synthesis but it does not turn out to be the case if we look at other literature that thc potency neatly correlates to intensity of effect either there's this fantasy that we're economizing as consumers by purchasing a higher THC rich product. When in fact, you find that actually, as you look deeper into the literature, there's numerous anecdotes about people who find that while they love cannabis and have a lifelong relationship with it, when they're consuming those products, that are very high THC. They're both having less desirable experiences, less enjoyment. Uh, and essentially evoking anxiety that cannabis is fantastic at assuaging in some cases. I love intensity of effect. I'm in no way trying to diminish the pursuit of strong experiences. I, I Microdosing is great and all, but I am somebody who loves the whole range of expression and really understand the consumer desire to feel things deeply and richly. But the problem is that in our data, you can see, which is, again, I believe to be the most rigorous at-scale clinical evidence that I'm aware of on the planet so far, and maybe there's others that are always excited to learn more, and we need to do a lot more work ourselves, But we see that it really is the case that the aroma correlates with far more enjoyment, and that enjoyment correlates to both intensity and diversity of effects. So this is the beginning, the tip of the iceberg in terms of trying to tilt This equation away from, uh, there's actually a really wonderful woman named Kristen Yoder who has a t-shirt line that says cannabis, uh, what is it, Indica and Sativa is lazy marketing. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think this is one of the most important statements that we have to attack uh, to get into serving people better, but then as cultivators, being able to produce the most amazing cannabis products, you know, on the earth to really focus on the things that are going to matter the most. Um, so uh, I should take a breath, Ted. I know that was a long
0: <laughs> Well, I, I kind of want to just go back and try and summarize and make sure I'm understanding because uh, you covered a lot of different things. Um, and, and some of the things that I want to possibly highlight are, one, you mentioned that we, one, we don't have... Uh, we don't have the right tools to capture all of the sensory experiences analytically that are occurring in this plant. Um, You talked about um, thiols and some of these other um, aromatic aspects. And and this is some, I'm coming from a place of someone who does not have a very good sense of smell. So this is difficult for me. Um, But I think that's a really important tool, and then one of the things that the cultivation classic found that I just want to reemphasize that you that you've mentioned them multiple times here is that the the most popular or the most coveted uh, cultivar cultivars were not the highest potency or highest THC. So, as an industry, we've been driving for like more THC, more THC. Uh, but the reality of it, when we, from a consumer perspective, is that. Uh, when given a blind uh, blind options, so they don't know the THC levels in them, uh, people were consistently choosing ones that were slightly lower THC. And and honestly, this I know the alcohol uh, correlation is, is is challenging in some way or comparison, but uh, for me, I much prefer a, a lager or an ale over an IPA, and that's because I enjoy the flavor profile of it more so than the heavy hoppy. Bitterness associated with a lot of IPAs, even though the alcohol percentage is lower, I'm going to pay the same amount of money for the the beer, and I'm not going to get as much alcohol, which is a lot. You know, a lot of the the driver that for a lot of people in consuming. Um, so I, I think that richness richness of experience is is an important conversation there. And uh, the other thing that I really want to highlight that you mentioned was this idea of titration. So. When you you've, you've talked, we've talked about this off air and you talk about the biggest driver for on the effect matrix. So how your 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 experience of smoking that joint or consuming that cannabis bud is really dosage at the end of the day, you know, environment, mood. Uh, cultivar, all of those things, THC percentage are all going to be factors, but but like you've, you've told me multiple times, dosage is the biggest factor and, and people should be aware of that when consuming. And I think that's really important. So how do we address all of these challenges then to give us a better model for understanding our experience with this plant? Great
1: summary and great question. One quick caveat i want to stuff in before responding to that is that you know it was a huge revolution to get access to chemistry analytics Uh, i remember when i was with ray bowser at the time or od diesel and there was a circle of us working around pat marshall's lab in wilsonville oregon called sunrise analytical Uh, this was actually the i believe a lab operating well in advance of steep hill in california and was the first analytical testing i'm aware of in the us to try to we were looking at 64 compounds you know and we were really informed by the way that phenotypic plasticity was occurring in our cultivation efforts that a single cultivar taken cuttings from that cultivar shared with different gardeners would produce very different range of chemistry and that's a really important insight and as growers I think it's really exciting to talk about analytical chemistry as a metric by which we can measure performance and and et cetera. There's many exciting components there and not to throw it out, but what I want to suggest now is that like, even when I founded a dispensary called pharma on uh, Hawthorne in Portland, this was a dispensary that had the very first terpene categorization system. First, the first dispensary that I'm aware of that displayed terpene data for all flower products. Uh, all tested at one lab was one of my big notions of how do we get people into utilizing cannabis in a way that's like lifelong sustainable relationships and not just serving uh, one population or another, but being a resource for everybody. I look back at, and I think I did the best that I could at the time. And, you know, am tre- tremendously indebted to Dr. Ethan Russo and Rafael mashulam and others who had laid the groundwork to try to understand from that perspective that, I tell you now, I look back and I think it's not that it was a mistake. It was a a step in the path uh, that now I think our whole industry has become overly reliant on very fallible analytical lab results. The, The output we see in an analytical lab result will vary from lab to lab, from crop to crop, in ways that simply are astounding. If you look at the level of data I've been able to digest over the last decade, I can share with you that it's just it means very little. I, there's a particular way to demonstrate an analytical testing process that from a consumer perspective is useful, but that's not what's happening in general. It, it is pretty chaotic when we don't have third-party regulatory oversight over lab testing and when we have, even with, after the American herbal pharmacopoeia standard, huge variance and methods. And in any case, what I'm trying to say is what would be far more useful is an accurate sensory expression in describing that. And just to take on beer, because I actually love beer and I've been learning a lot from scientists involved with hops in the last years. Um, you know, in beer, if you have a lager, that's a brand promise. The consumer now has an expectation of that brand. It's, it should be crisp, refreshing, Moderate ABV, something like 5%, should be a crystal clear, um, you know, cold fermented product. And there's a certain range. You can find more biscuits or certain notes that are going to stand out. But that's an expectation now that the consumer has. And the producer is obliged to fulfill that if it is a lager. If it's a hazy IPA, however, now we have a product that we have an expectation. It's going to be a viscous liqueur that's thick, mouthfeel with low bitterness with massive hop aroma and mouthfeel characteristics you know, now as a producer i can work within that range and i would say that we haven't moved to this level of maturity in the massive amount of genetic diversity we have in cannabis into these archetypal sensory buckets yet but you can imagine how much more rewarding it is to people who are purchasing the products when Say they're looking for their peak gas expression, and they look and find that there's a range of gassy products, but in fact, one is much, much more expressive, as I saw recently at a cultivator's uh, curatorial event in San Francisco that uh, Node Labs and Cultivated Industries was involved with. There was one product that was so clearly the dominant dial-rich product, but then there's like 10 others, and this one was so much louder, but I would say a majority of people wouldn't have noticed that. And that's that's really interesting to me. And then you look to how cannabis producers curate their products. I hate to say this, but as a, you know, a grower myself, it's sort of like we rely on our own sense disproportionately because we haven't studied sensory science and don't have the tools to make relevant the language of sensory to the consumer in a way that's very, very useful. Instead, we literally have one person saying, this one's the shit. This is the best product look at, you know, I I know, take it for me. And sort of like, well, yeah, but when you look into sensory science, you learn that we all have certain things you can smell and not smell so well. And when you say you can't smell so well, I a little bit want to challenge that because I think the sense of smell is a very subjective, interesting terrain to dive into. And there's an amazing movie for those of you who want to geek out on smell called Les Parfums that just came out that, actually features this protagonist who's a nose. She's a perfumer. And that is the most elite uh, training you can find for sensory on the planet. Well beneath that is wine, well beneath that is beer. Cannabis isn't even really on the radar yet. I mean, it is, but it's just not showing up in that way. Um, So it's just a great uh, sort of exploration of what a nose must be able to achieve to essentially uh, demonstrate effectiveness in sensory but in sensory you use typically panels of people uh you know 20 or 30 people would be a pretty ideal uh size group and there are masters who have, have really taken this on with incredible discipline in the world of craft beer that I've been looking to for a while uh Lindsay Barr I believe is one that I'll just throw a name out uh, my good friend Nick Ziegler who was the head of R&D at Yakima Chief Hops is another great one uh, Drew Hull is a man who's composed a sensory science team for the company True Terpenes. These people all have real-world experience that are you know, based in uh, characterizing products from that perspective. But in any case, what I'm trying to say is that it sure would be useful if, as cultivators and as an industry, we leaned way more toward the sensory side of the equation, not to abandon analytics. Both are important. Like, for example, I'm a breeder, and I'm very privileged to be working on some at-scale hemp genetics uh, program this year, in addition to things that I'm doing uh, still at Proof Cultivar uh, because I'm now a consultant and have the ability to do more exciting and different things after having recently found unbelievable head grower uh, who's named Sam Hofler, who I – if those of you who have not listened to the podcast you hosted with Sam – he in one paragraph I think says some of the most innovative thought about irrigation practices I've heard that once he came on and um, the team has gotten really strong, I, I've been able to focus in areas that I'm looking forward to developing more, which is more R and D stuff and engagement with the world and different visions. Uh, but in any case in the hemp breeding, you want to have both sensory and analytics in your funnel so that you can truly find those most differentiated plants. But back to on the importance of aroma I would say that if you do not have aroma as a key target and you're working in, say, a smokable hemp or a craft flower space, uh, then you're really missing the point. (laughs) I, I hate to say this. We have an Instagram culture that looks at frosty flowers. And, you know, I'll never forget when, like, the snow was big or when BC, like, beasters was coming through and there was this huge amount of trichomes and it had no character at all. It was like this inert biomass. It had also no effect. Like it was just it looked so good and it was so disappointing. We continue to see plants bred from the white. I'm just gonna call it out. The white is a soulless plant to me. I've grown so many versions of it. I've seen grown so many hybrids from it. Yes, you'll see a dominant trait that increases the trichome production and this visible resin content, but it's not about what's visible, it's what's inside that matters. You can't judge the character of the finest wine by looking at the bottle or, or looking at the, the quality of the skin of the grape. It's, it's absurd. It's the aroma and the magic of all of this chemistry. But, you know, I think, actually to just jump for to another level of depth, this is partly a reflection on our culture, right? This comes from an industrial culture that has been focused on throughput and quantitative goals in many ways that are very distinct from qualitative growths Like when we bred many different uh, plants for food systems, uh, flavor and nutrition and aroma were nearly left out, or were among the last items to be considered, and that's appropriate. You have to focus on agronomic targets first, but to miss what the heirloom tomato is, uh, as opposed to the Roma or the not the Roma is actually a good tomato, but to the sort of flavorless, you know, grocery market tomatoes, it, it's just it's, it's, we're like missing. This substance in life, which is about being present-centered, and using your senses as a vehicle for enlightenment, dare I say, um, this little bit correlates in even further afield with like the fact that we, in America especially, are in a very puritanical culture. And I think we need to be cognizant of the impacts of that kind of culture that suppresses the senses, that values work above all things, that... You know and here i am in europe there's a very different balance of power here there's a lot more focus if you are in various places in europe you go to the cheese shop you go to the bread maker you go to these things of course there's big chains and everything but in general there's a much higher sort of level of development and sensibility applied to the expression of craft products i would say across the board and I think that's a little bit less puritanical, and it's a bit of a radical notion to embrace the senses. But back to that Yates quote, sort of like there's all this magic in life, and magic is a tricky word, I know, for a lot of people. And I'll just say that there's surprising depth and dimension once you choose to focus on the sensory experience of a product that opens, that is its own path. You know, it, it's infinite in its range of expression. You'll never find all of the possible expressions, no matter how hard you work. And I have really tried to do that in my own way in cannabis. And I'm now a national judge for the National Cannabis Competition. I've put on these events. I've done all these things to try to get to a position where I can truly qualify these different kinds of aroma ranges. But it's infinite. But that is exciting. That's where the passion of a cultivator comes for me. No kidding. The most exciting thing about cultivation has always been discovering a new phenotypic expression and a particular aroma diversity or intensity that's novel or that enriches my sense of what's possible. That is absolutely the key. Of course, I've also very much focused on therapeutic use and having consistent chemotype expressions because I want to be a resource for patients. They're using it for quality of life improvement in a reliable way. But the reason I would also jump to organic crop production being so very important is that in decades of cultivation, I have always used both organic cultivation methods and synthetic mineral salt fertilizers and hydro methods. I've always done both. But for an elite consumer-focused flower brand to not Value organic cultivation is insane to me. To see this industry develop in a way, now I'm just jumping directly into a critique of the industry, uh, there's, there's this huge myth that's going on when we're relying on two-part synthetic mineral salt fertilizers with very, very thin emphasis on biology or, say, rhizophagy or endophytes, You know the endophytic organisms that intracellularly congregate inside of the plant, uh, the fungal networks that the plants have evolved from the beginning of time in partnership and synergy with. Um, these things clearly up and down regulate uh, aroma synthesis and are a part of the equation. I, I saw this uh, LinkedIn article recently by Arroyo, who are an amazing team doing a lot of data driven cultivation support. They asked, What's your favorite media? And there's like, it's rock wool. Core um, perlite and another hydroponic substrate, I believe hydroton. Um, there was like, there was no sort of uh, you know living soil or biology-rich media included. And I thought, what a miss! Like this is absurd that we've come to this place where a product that has an enjoyment that is most increased by aroma intensity, we're using essentially production methods that are less effective at evoking that kind of passion from the plant. And I talked to others, I mean, you talk to Kevin Jodry or folks who've been around a long time. I think you consistently hear this message that if you're really looking for the best organoleptic expressions, the best uh, aroma intensity and diversity in cannabis, you absolutely need to use uh, high biology, you know, whether it's a, a biology forward living soil, soilless substrate, or you're, you know, working like, uh, so many amazing farmers, like Greensource or you know, Biovortex or others, using regenerative farm practices, to really uh, support that sort of uh, expression in the product. And I, I wish there was the white paper that could evaluate that dynamic. That may well be something I'll get to work on in the future because I can't wait to come out with the kind of clarity I can now speak about aroma with, with regard to organic crop production. I'm confident that's a significant variable. And that the industry has essentially taken the cheap and easy way towards you know there's this fear of managing the agronomic crop balancing of a rich organic program that is well founded. So, it does take a lot of work.
0: So but Jeremy, it's also, real quick,
1: um, a bit irrational.
0: Yeah. So you went though recently with your facility from uh, a you know organic bottled nutrient program to more of a living soil methodology essentially moving towards that that biological aspect that you talk about with aroma expression, did you notice a change in your your cultivars in how they were expressed when you made that change, made that switch? I
1: can speak anecdotally about that. The reality is we have so many new cultivars at the same time we have this new program and the new cultivars continue to get more and more expressive is my experience okay. over the years. Um, but yes, I just want to say that I think that is definitely the case. But now if we could just shift to well gosh, here organic cultivation can improve that expression. Look at what happens after the plant is cut and how that veers from say ancient cannabis culture, it would milk the freshly grown plant. It wouldn't even cut or harvest that plant, but rather, you know, gather charis by hand and create, you know, hashish and actually create a sort of means of uh, a sort of shelf stability by using the rind of the product itself to capture all of that freshly milked whole plant phytochemical inventory that over time gets more and more interesting. But there's this word I love to have that is fidelity. It has low fidelity to the flower itself. It becomes its own thing. It's wine. It's fermentation almost. It's There's so much going on. I know before Frenchie passed, there was up to 50 compounds identified uniquely in hashish that started with the terpenoid hashishin that do not exist in the plant, that were showing up in the interactions of all these VOCs side of the hashish. But that's very distinct from rosin and the solventless outcomes that are very high fidelity to the flower that actually are capturing that, that Here's the problem with flour. I think when you look at, even this is a part of Frenchy's teaching and anybody who's in the sort of hash world, it's that there's too damn much oxidative surface area. The heads of the trichomes are, you know, a thin veneer, swaxy cuticle that easily breaks down the oxidative forces and then releases the VOCs and the aroma. Uh, So I authored a white paper last year in partnership with Dr. Ethan Russo And we created a novel solventless process. And I should share this with you, too, because it has, in the back part of it, I've open-sourced many of the production targets we've used at Proof uh, that we've evolved over the years with lots of data and insight using very specific, uh, whether it's VPD or PPFD or every ingredient we use in the program, including the KISS media. And, I mean, just open-source that whole program because there's still so much you can't you still can't just implement that but anyways in this paper we showed you the chemistry that is in the typical flower sample it's very technically dried or dried as well as it can be um, using existing equipment um, and i'd say proof that it's above average for where i see a lot of the drying process in the industry going you lose at minimum of about 50% of the monoterpenes by the time you're done with drying but then, if we use the language of the hops industry, they have a word for spoiled hops, or uh, an idea for spoiled hops that's related to a loss of more than 50% of the aromatic inventory. It's nearly spoiled by the time we frickin' dry it. That's a giant issue. Uh, this is why whole plant fresh frozen has become such a giant deal. Uh, you see, living resin, which is you know a hydrocarbon distillate mixed with whole plant fresh frozen aromatic fractions. Include more than terpenes, of course, uh, blended in, and, and people grossly prefer those products in all the consumer market data. But that's still nowhere near to the qualitative depth of the rosin, which you know doesn't separate those things out, or you can, but it doesn't have to. The batters that are, I'd say, my favorite versions of high fidelity, aroma forward rosin products uh, don't. But in any case, we, uh, using Ethan's leadership, developed a method for cryo keys. It actually uses whole plant fresh frozen but doesn't go into water hash because water, unfortunately, is also another solvent. And, yes, even when you're making water hash, you're losing a bunch of the water-soluble aromatic compounds. And we show you that data. It's all in the paper. And we, we paid a lot of money to LifeScale Labs to be able to illustrate that actually we preserved that 50% otherwise lost monoterpene. Inventory, which on an analytical lab result is the best metric to identify from a producer perspective our success at retaining aroma. So, I, I just want to suggest that we're moving into a conversation where the supply chain itself needs to evolve to support the best quality of product or bets. Let's actually distinguish quality, according to my friend Nick Ziegler, and I think he's correct, uh, should be more narrowly applied, as in quality analysis and quality control, to particular steps in the producer ecosystem. Character is actually a more effective adjective to describe the outcome of an organoleptic expression. So you're dealing with product character when you're talking about aroma, really. I I sometimes mistakenly, interchangeably use those words, and I think everybody else does too, but I just think it's important to bookmark that. In any case, um, the character of the product going in the supply chain, once I've cut it down, dried it, say you've dried it not so well. Well, now you've lost more than that 50% I'm talking about, and now it's getting packed, and then it's going to go through you know, the wholesale channels, and it's going to eventually be distributed to retail, and then it's typically still in a glass jar, uh, at least in Oregon in our deli style. Often there's lights involved. Definitely there's no temperature control involved and things are oxidizing, oxidizing radically. So a quick experiment I did at home, anybody can do this, cut down a fresh, freshly dried plant, excuse me, cut down a fresh plant, dry it, and then put one section into the refrigerator in an airtight, light-proof container, and then put another just on your shelf at ambient temperature. And my experience is consistently that within two to three weeks, the flour that's stored at ambient temperature does not smell anything like it did when all of that incredible product character was expressed before. And most of that's lost. Certain things are more resilient than others like Mm terpenaline. The haze and Jack inspired aromas are very stable. I have products that have been around for years in the vault. that still smell like that terpenaline rich floral intensity, but in general, the nuance and character goes and it goes fast. So you started by drying and then losing most, then we've kicked it to the curb past that. Comparing it to hops, which is like pennies on the dollar uh, relative to the wholesale value of the cannabis products for mature premium cannabis flower, they pack it in mylar at zero degrees once it's you know, in noble gases the moment it's finished drying. And they do long-term shelf stability trials and validate when it becomes spoiled and all the stuff that the cannabis industry doesn't do or brewers who put fresh beer out on the, pack, on the shelf Here's pro tip. Look at the bottom of a can of beer. You'll see the date it was released. Buy fresh beer and tell me you can't taste a difference. And not fresh beer. And by fresh, maybe thirty or certainly under sixty days. But there's beer on the shelf that's ninety plus. And if you're drinking, say a craft IPA, massive difference. And they understand that. So if you're like Ben Edmonds at Breakside Brewery, you go reclaim your product at day forty five if it's a fresh IPA because you don't want to have that poor representation of your brand. We don't see this in cannabis yet. You just sell it and it goes and it's beat to hell. And it smells like alfalfa, hay, or inert or worse it had too much moisture. Now it's got some blue cheese or ammonia notes. Um, so, so these are the, the off notes that I want consumers to look out for. But what could we do to change this? Well, we would get more advanced with our drying, using water activity more frequently uh, we would work more with like the cryo keef method and these solventless products that in concentrate constantly move through a cold chain all the way to the end point of use. I am so proud of the rosin that I've built at Proof because uh, with this team, which includes you know, our incredible Hashishin, uh, Fuji Bongwater and uh, our operator Val and this whole great team, we're finally translating the quality of that living soil grown LED-driven, you know, exciting new boutique variety cannabis products all the way to that end point of use. If you go get a fresh sample of batter of grapple pie, it's going to smell incredibly diverse and dynamic, and you're going to enjoy that product so much more typically, I would say, than the flour sample that has now gone through non-temperature controlled uh, sort of long-term storage and has been beaten all around. So here's a simple idea. I think that we need temperature control and airtight vessels. You know, this is a a contentious issue and we don't have a ton of time, so I I can't go deeply into debating curing. Like the idea of long curing, uh, gosh, flowers are not hash. It's all this oxidative surface area. I can show you all the analytical lab tests. I can show you my sensory experiences and with big groups now that flower becomes usually a bit fungal and highly oxidated. And now you're left with the cannabinoids and you've lost all this product character. I'm not a fan of that. I know people are, I, that's more of like a, I, something I can't explain. I think people would benefit the most from the freshest version of, of the flower, but in order to get there, we'll have to use temperature controlled environments. So ultra premium flower, I see going in refrigerators or in a sort of hold chain and distribution that's refrigerated, as well as packed in a low oxygen environment, you know, and sustained once it's been well cured. But the reality is in the supply chain we have, this is where the solventless products are pretty remarkable in their ability to get all the way to the end point of use. They're tiny and they're also, you know, expensive, but they're precious because they do constantly work to maintain that integrity of the organoleptic voice and the aroma intensity. but I think as cultivators, it's really important to just have aroma in mind constantly. And and when I think of Rob Clark and Mojave Richmond talked often about this is an aroma therapeutic crop. (laughs) And we're like missing the point if we're focusing on strain names, THC, even dominant terpenes, Indica sativa hybrid, and the nose really does know. But the problem is the nose doesn't believe in itself so often. So back to your sense of scent, Tad. I well, think that there is a huge we, amount of people who distrust their senses.
0: Yes. Before we touch on that. Okay, please. Can you just take me through, uh, for a cultivator, your optimal process for sort of drying and curing a plant from harvest on? Just in, in a little more concrete terms to give people... Okay. Um, just a better idea with what you're comfortable sharing, I guess. So you've mentioned oh,
1: absolutely. I,
0: colder, airtight, temperature controlled. Yeah, can you just touch on that before we
1: so let's let's even rewind it a bit. So the drying process, first, you know identifying peak maturity is a thing. People who harvest on the calendar eight weeks, you know or nine weeks routinely are generally missing the peak organoleptic expression. One example, we've been cultivating Jokers 31 from, excuse me, Jokers from uh, the uh, compound genetics team. Huge style profile. I noticed that there's a 72-hour window where that part of the profile peaks. It's like eight and a half weeks in. Uh, That is an example of a window of time where if we want to capture that in its most expressive state, we need to harvest at that time. So using sensory in the cultivation facility to identify that, ideally combined with analytics, except in the case of this one, if you're looking for gas, there's no limonene, myrcene, beta-caryophyllene correlation to that. That's the compounds we would see in that sort of a CUSH profile. But so what I'm trying to say is first it starts with when you harvest, and then it's how you harvest. Are you rapidly getting the freshly harvested buck plants carefully into the temperature and humidity controlled drying environment. I would say that where people have gone awry in drying environments is that ideally if you could wave the wand, you'd have two HVAC systems. One that's a beast that can take out a majority of the water content in a short period of time, say 48 hours or less, um, with aggressive dehumidification and being able to immediately with the water activity process, uh, get down to your between 0.65, 0.85 uh, sort of water activity so that botrytis cannot occur. Uh, that knocks out a huge amount of crop loss. But then have a second smaller HVAC system that stabilizes and carries those trends, you know, for the duration of the qualitative components in the drying, getting that 90% reduction of moisture down to, you know, 10%, pretty ideally, but between 8 and 10 and essentially, uh, the moment that's achieved, being a, here's the big trick, facilitating a large-scale crop uh, into hand trimming the moment it's at perfect moisture content and water activity. That's not easy to do. I, I don't know many people that can pull it off. You do the best you can, and you have to probably uh, cut some corners occasionally. But the best you can mobilize a team to go through that quickly, so maybe you start trimming at 12% or 14%, and then you're monitoring it and not sealing that product and being very, very careful with your water activity monitoring to keep it in the safe zone. Uh, then keeping that constantly from that moment in a, either inert gas, so we have a combination of CO2 and nitrogen uh, blended, so it's like 20% uh, CO2, 80% nitrogen. Just hand fill that. You don't even have to do it with a really accurate, precise method, but displace a majority of the oxygen, that's in the container where those reactions are occurring. And then of course, even in burping, uh, we talk about burping, but Dr. Allison Justice was the first person who piqued my awareness with the huge amount of ethylene content that's in the finishing gases that are off-gassing in that flower product. Ethylene is a ripening agent. You know, we can only speculate about what all it's doing in cannabis, but look to everything else. We see that complex carbohydrates are rapidly breaking down into sugars, And, you know, imagine how fast the banana ripens in the bag when its ethylene is more concentrated than what's out in the open and it's less concentrated. I imagine there's a similar dynamic and that, who knows, it may be advantageous to trap in that ethylene, but I doubt it. So you need to burp the excess CO2 and ethylene, the excess moisture, and before you seal it in that inert gas environment really correctly. Uh, But then going from there, it's this cold chain. Keep it in... You know, temperatures that are going to be more like refrigerated temperatures never freeze product unless you intend to rapidly use the product after you remove it from the freezer, because there's a process called nucleation, where essentially ice crystals are building up inside of the plant cellular tissue. And then as soon as they um, thaw, it's an expansion and contraction exercise, it breaks and bursts these, you know, sort of simple uh uh these these stores for the vocs and so forth so refrigerated temps is my my target and i would say that um you could you know stay at it, the low side of refrigeration and that'd be that would be ideal but most people are going to be closer to probably 55 or 65 degrees that's okay it's certainly better than uh not having any refrigeration Really, the cooler you can be, the less brownie in motion. This is a great word I learned recently about uh, the way molecules move in uh, even various uh, liquids and chilled steaks. But essentially, you want to package that product and continue to sustain it in stasis so the freshness is there. Um, I do not use or advise the use of Boveda packs or other branded uh, desiccants or humidificants um, I think those really uh, absolutely pillage the aroma has been my experience personally. I, I see retail nearly universally using those things, which is like a fix to a to problems that happen downstream, that doesn't really work. Um, you can never add water back in, you know without compromising aroma or increasing the likelihood for new biology to, to grow there. I, I just I'm not a fan of that. I think getting it correct in drying, in transferring and unpacking is more important. I would like to see a lot more emphasis on those things, but then keep it refrigerated all the way to the point when the consumer is picking up and purchasing the product. That would be a revolution. People would see and smell a kind of sort of experience that only the producers typically get access to, which, you know, is where the most passionate people in the industry sometimes are. It's the people growing the plants. And you see why when you see this massive aroma expression, and I'll just share personally, it's a bit heartbreaking to me when I know what the product looked like before it went through all these many steps, and then I see on a random spot buy at some retail where I have flour at, and this kind of really degraded expression, and it still looks good, it tests well, it sells well, it's still got some character. It is one-tenth, or maybe even less, of the character it had before that whole thing started, so I really do want to see um, airtight, you know, sort of light proof refrigerated packaging for elite uh, flower products. But at some point you start to realize that's a bit crazy. You know, it's interesting that only in the last 50 years do we have this culture that is so uh, about the flower itself. And I really, really love flour and I love fidelity to flour. But I would just suggest that we also need to be humble and uh, acknowledging this ancestral ancient cannabis culture around the world that for hundreds of generations worked exclusively on hash production i'm not i I love traditional hash i think it's probably my favorite product but i am not at all against like the high fidelity exciting massive rosin ecosystem that's opening and i would suggest for people who don't have enough experience try not always against a distillate formulated live resin and i i can absolutely discernibly feel a difference for myself. It's clear. I'm not making it up. It's less desirable. I get more narrow effects. I get less uh, sort of nuance and less, less good feelings. There's something about keeping everything together and this whole plant form where you're not combining and recombining things. Um, You're really just trying to capture the peak freshness and maturity And carry that all the way to the moment you ingest that in an inhalable or otherwise other form. Here's one really quick weird thing. We just did a trial where actually there's like six different kinds of inputs in a gummy. For a long time, people were wondering, well, does it make a difference to have these big whole plant phytochemical inventories in gummies? Like, isn't the THC and CBD the only compounds really getting through the bile, et cetera? It absolutely makes a difference. There's no question left. Uh, Dr. Natasha Riz, who used to be chief science at Xenobis, was one of the first people to show me data about lavender and linole getting all the way into the gut and being able to be a very powerful aid to IBS and Crohn's therapies. Uh, It's very clear that the rosin-infused gummy, it's just a better product. That's a much more enjoyable edible. So I think it's easy to achieve what I'm talking about with cold chain post-process with hash, and rosin products, it's harder to do that with flower products in the current industry. I would say that people who have yet to build out have a lot of opportunity to differentiate and use what we've learned to be able to better facilitate this massive variable in consumer enjoyment. And to really then, lastly, I would say that it's not enough to do all that, actually do sensory science. And you may not be able to do it in-house, but like we're collaborating with True Turpines team, who will bring their folks hopefully to the table to, to have a third party characterize the products. And you know this fantastic process where they've done training; um, they they're effective in being able to sort of create their own blends and find the expressiveness and range. But this is back to the riff I was starting uh, before you asked the question about practical uh, thoughts related to uh, the post process. Mm-hmm. It's simply this. You can imagine that there are at least a trillion possible aromas. Now how much language do you have? This is the fundamental challenge with everybody who I think looks down the barrel of sensory science at first. You don't trust that you yourself are an expert, or and most people are not certainly, or that you can be. I, I believe that more people than I think they than identify in that way could, with the littlest bit of training or as a part of a larger sensory process, become educated and useful in this unfolding conversation. And that's what I want to encourage. And it is a challenging thing. I talk to people who describe sensory like architecture and its shapes or who describe it as sounds and have like various synesthetic Modalities, or it's a really tricky space because it's so it's so vast. You know, there isn't a million or a million adjectives, let alone a trillion, that we're going to deploy. But as we get better, and you use groups to round it out, simply reporting a few adjectives about what's exciting in that product from a sensory perspective, after you've done your excellent cold chain post-process, will create a whole new level of cannabis enjoyment. And I would argue that enjoyment is in some ways tethered to therapeutic use and to long-term relationships. And it's really the maturing of what is a very early stage kind of new industry in this ancient culture that needs to be addressed. And I'm trying to do that work with a variety of teams and thrilled about the results that I've seen. But again, I think the nose knows. But the next part of a statement I would add on is people don't trust themselves yet though. You know, it's like the nose knows, but there's some disconnecting, cognitive dissonance, if you will. And what I'm excited to do is to help support people to be more effective in that regard. But then also not even to, to encourage everybody to do that, but at least on the producer side, if you're spending your life cultivating flowers and not working on sensory in a way that's above and beyond you using your own anecdotal perspective, you're missing a giant part of how we can make the richest, best, most valuable expressions of craft of cannabis on the earth. I really mean that. And I'm so, really excited about this conversation as it unfolds.
0: You know, I think you've given us a lot to think about. Um, I know myself uh, as a consumer, um, I-, I want to be more cognizant of my dosage my um, environment my mood um, and how that relates to the cultivar how the plant was grown and all of these things to get a more comprehensive understanding of what that effect is uh for me and and how that the plant interacts with my personal endocannabinoid system which i found is quite different than the majority so um yeah, I, my, I appreciate that, my friend. You gave us a lot to think about today, and I'm so grateful for your time. Um, hope you have a wonderful Ted, rest of more, your trip. Oh yeah, go one ahead. One
1: more really quick thing in, in summary. I, there's one other thought, just to go all the way back to the beginning. It's simply that, think again about the person who walks into the retail dispensary, who may be from out of town, who may be not hooked up and connected, who doesn't have the elite cultivator uh, group of connoisseurs that you do, or you know that really are just trying to find their favorite experience. And think about the layers of bullshit they have to wade through. Yeah, Indica-Sativa hybrid, high THC, strain name, terpene dominance, um, and now we'll add proprietary marketing effect language. That's literally five layers of deceit and lies that stand in between the person and the planet. I would say we do so well to start to just remove all of that just take it away and educate retail staff with sensory language use language that actually is accessible that connects to people but also that's accurate and when it's accurate and you have that product and you finally find that sort of uh gosh fermented blueberry with a floral punctuated note with a sort of a top note a middle and a bottom that's still got gas you're so delighted by that experience it's like a discovery and then you want to reproduce it but you've at least internally mapped that i think that's the kind of stuff like i'm in dublin there's this giant whiskey museum you look at all these people i mean they've been doing this for generations and that's what they're looking for they're looking to reproduce that amazing experience they of course have mouthfeel and actual flavor but i I, anyways more to say but You sir, thank you for this platform. Thank you for the opportunity and privilege to get to communicate with uh, all of the amazing folks that tune in and I am just so grateful to you for also the best version of an organoleptic uh, enriching media that has happened certainly in the last five years of proof and the supply chain disruptions and chaos that led me and Sam and Todd and the team make the bold move to, with absolutely no time to trial, jump in headlong into the necessity of agronomic balancing and liquid injecting in small-sized containers with living soil. But really, your product is second to none. It's been fantastic and helpful.
0: Unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties, the end of the podcast recording was cut off, but we caught the majority of the content, so I decided to publish it as is. That was Jeremy Plum, and you were listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. I'll post pertinent links on the podcast page at www.kisorganics.com. Just click on the Learn tab and then Podcast. Thanks for listening.